Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Today, I have John on the show. John reached out actually through LinkedIn and we had started a connection. So it was pretty exciting to uh, get an opportunity to sit down with him today. John, introduce yourself really quick to everybody that's listening. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm John Kogan, a marketing veteran. Uh, sad to say at this point, about 20 years on the agency side. I've recently started my own consultancy, fractional marketing and consultancy practice just, just in the last few months. And it was through that journey getting set up that I that uh, reached out to you and glad to have made that connection. Working closely, I've worked quite a bit in the healthcare sector. So working closely now with not just healthcare companies, but companies in heavily regulated, highly constrained sectors and really trying to help them kind of bring an innovative and creative lens to their marketing practice, which can often feel kind of boxed in and constrained, but you know, which often leads to some of the best ideas and best work and trying to bring that to life and tap into that. I love it. I'm sure there's people who definitely would love your help when I hear that. Hopefully. Hopefully. Amazing. Well, listen, okay, so I'm going to dive right in. Who is the best boss that you've ever worked for? So as I was just telling you, I'm taking a bit of a cop-out approach here, I think for good reason, and I'm going to stick with two. But one was my first boss, very beginning of my career, and I think was the perfect boss for that moment in my life and my career. And one was one of the more recent bosses that I had in a, in, in a more of a senior uh, leadership position who I think was a, the perfect kind of pragmatist and realist to kind of help guide me along and maybe maybe to help quell some of the ego and comfort level that starts to creep in, especially as you get more advanced in your career. So and I'll start with the former. When I first started, you know, as we all do, it's all about kind of gaining confidence, gaining traction. And this boss named Dan was incredible at what I'll say is believing in me more than I believed in myself. And not just me, I think a number of people on his team. And I think it's that belief that you know, really elevated not only my performance, but the performance of the, the organization. And I think what he realized at a very practical level was that small failures were easy to recover from. And so obviously, when you kind of put people out on a limb and let them stretch maybe beyond where they think they're you know, initially capable of stretching to, you're going to have some you know, broken branches and some missteps, but ultimately, you're going to succeed a lot more than you fail. And you're going to easily recover from those failures. And I think learning to kind of operate without fear really came from that, came from him, came from the fact that he not only believed in me when I succeeded, believed in me when I failed, helped me recover from those failures, took the blame for those failures, deflected the credit for the, you know, the successes. So it was really just that sense of confidence and comfort. And I would I'll, I'll say limberness. I always equate things to sports. You'll see I use a lot of athletic analogies. And I think when you see the, the best players, there's a certain limberness and looseness to how they operate on the field or ice or whatever surface versus the players that are maybe a little tighter, a little more almost like taut and restrictive in their movement. And I think the way he operated in conversations with clients and conversations internally with our team, with me, there was just this kind of readiness for any curveball or any situation that might come up. And I think I learned that that really came from him being comfortable, not only in his own skin, but comfortable that any problem can be managed and that it's okay to be imperfect, especially early on in the career. I came out of business school. They, there's a real standard of almost a false ego. I don't want to say is part of a business school education, but is often 
a byproduct at times. So to kind of get a little bit of humility and but a, and a realization that you can succeed and that you can stretch beyond you know what you think is possible was a huge shot in the arm uh, early on in my you know early twenties. So give me some examples too of like what did that look like? Like I mean I'm sure you know he gave you some challenging assignments, but what did he do when you did mess things up? Like give me some example. Well, first of all, he he made himself extremely approachable. So it almost it became a point where I wasn't worried about letting him know if something went wrong. I was ex- almost excited. I, I better talk to Dan about this because he's going to help fix it. There was never going to be this sense of fear or judgment. So that that was helpful. I think there were just a number of situations where if I was, you know, as, as like a 23, 24-year-old at a pretty junior level working behind the scenes, when I was explaining a concept to him or how, you know, it, this was early 2000s, and, you know, we were doing a lot of analytics work on, on websites that were pretty new at the time, I'm dating myself now. And as I was, I was kind of explaining to him how, for example, a website was performing based on you know the early forms of Google Analytics, at some point he was just like, "Well, you don't need to explain it to me. You'll come to the client meeting. I'll explain it to everybody." And so that was it. Was almost like, "Here, why go with this broken telephone approach? You know, you're perfectly capable of articulating this. You'll join us in the meeting." So all of a sudden, I find myself kind of, I'll say, punching above my weight class. To use another sports analogy, where I get to be in the room and I'm there. I'm you know I'm there to deliver this one particular point but now I'm in the meeting with the full team and I'm getting to you know learn by osmosis and pick up what's going on and and kind of get to know the dynamic at more senior levels and so it was invaluable learning and I and I've said to many people if, I, if there's one piece of advice it comes from that which is become an expert on one thing that maybe your boss or your colleagues aren't quite as adept at because that's going to get you into a lot of rooms that you might otherwise not uh, get into but it takes a certain level of vulnerability and humility from that leader as well to accept that and to and to believe and and empower uh, young team members. That's a great piece of advice, though, for a new team member. And just like you said, if you have a good manager who's willing to let you be that expert and let you have a voice, now you've got a reason to be in the meeting. Absolutely. And the other leader now that you mentioned. So he brought me into uh, Tank Worldwide, which is a company I worked for for the better part of the last four years before starting my own practice. And he's the ultimate pragmatist. And I've said this to him many times, an unbelievable balance of compassion, but absolute fearless bluntness that I admire and, and aspire to. And what I noticed pretty quickly, because he was based in Montreal and would, and would travel, I was leading the Toronto operation for, the, for Tank and he would travel to meet with me. But every time he would come into Toronto, he'd have a lunch and a coffee and you know several other sessions, it seemed, with various people based in Toronto. And he, it was almost he was collecting proteges that he had so many people that had worked for him over the years in his, in his various roles as a leader that still wanted to stay in touch, kind of tap into his wisdom, his compassion, his encouragement. And, you know, even though, even though I was just getting to know him at the time, I started to realize, wow, that's an impressive quality. And that's a nice barometer that do the people that you have kind of uh, led or, or worked with or collaborated with still want to keep in touch and keep up that relationship long after your business relationship ends. And in his case, that was clearly the case. And it's the case for me with him right now. He left Tank uh, about a year and a half ago, and we've kept in touch. And he's been incredibly helpful, especially the last several months. Why is that the case? I think it's, it's, it's a combination of, like I said, that comfort in his own skin, that vulnerability and humility to be both compassionate and truly caring, but also incredibly direct. But there was also a certain pragmatism, but really that's what it is. And I'd say realism where he was the first leader to say to me, look, you know, you've got your strengths and you've got your challenge areas or weaknesses or whatever term you want to use. You don't necessarily have to fix 
the weaknesses. <laughs> You're not going to become great at everything. You need to just own them and you need to be aware of them and understanding of them and understanding of the impact they have on yourself and on other people so that you can A, surround yourself with people that help to balance that and B, mitigate the impact that they have and, and, and just be honest and, and humble about that. And so that was the first kind of, and again, I was, I'm, I'm 43 years old. I guess I was probably about 40, 41 at the time. And it was great to hear that because I think you, you want to either A, try to act like you're perfect in some cases, or really try to fix what those flaws are. And it's freeing in a way to say, well, I don't, I'm not probably not going to be able to fix some of these flaws at this point, but if I can acknowledge them and own them and try to mitigate them, but also just be honest and humble and vulnerable about them, you can continue to operate and you can continue to, again, surround yourself with teammates and uh, leaders that help to bring the best out of one another. Until you kind of own what you're best at and what maybe you're not as adept at, it's very hard to do that. So I think he really brought that out, not just for me, but from the entire organization. I think that you know created quite a bit of, to use the buzzword, synergy within the leadership group for sure. So getting people to really own the strengths and the weaknesses and be fully kind of immersed in how do you orient yourself given what you know, that's, that's actually pretty insightful when you think about it because typically people either heavily focus on strength or they heavily focus on weakness. And we kind of leave it to the manager a lot of the times to figure out how to find the synergies. But if you get everybody really involved in that, it would change the way you'd operate. For sure. And he led by example. Like He, he fully owned what he was best at and what he wasn't as uh, adept at or experienced with. I don't know that it would work if he was perfect, you know, or, or, or carried himself that way. And he certainly didn't. Anything else you want to share about either of these leaders? I think the one part that both of them possessed, and I, again, it came from just being genuine and authentic and, and comfortable in who they were, is that, and I've used the term vulnerability a couple of times, but that ability, because they had that foundation of genuine care that they established, they could be as direct and cutting and blunt as needed. They didn't need to sugarcoat because I knew they cared. And I knew that it was coming from a place of constructive feedback. We didn't have to waste time sugarcoating and, and dancing around some difficult conversations. It was, they were both extremely blunt and, and sometimes in a way that was jarring, but mostly in a way that, that was super easy to kind of digest because you knew it was coming from a genuine place. And so that's something I've really, you know, it's, it's hard to have hard conversations. The word hard's right in there. And, you know, I've tried to get better at establishing that foundation up front so that you can, with as little waste as possible, get right into the, you know, the difficult conversations that inevitably are going to come up in any, you know, any relationship. That's an ongoing theme. So if you listen to the, you know, 60 some episodes, there's this reoccurring theme that shows up around how people have the right to give difficult feedback. And it always comes back from a base of the person knew they cared. Like they knew they cared about them personally. And then the, the difficult feedback was easy to deal with. And so there's just this reoccurring theme because you hear, you know, leaders give difficult feedback and then they, they hurt people in the process and they don't know why. But if they don't have that base of that person knowing that they care about them and that's the purpose of their blunt feedback, it's like, you know, that's the game changer. Yeah. And there's also nothing worse than finding out in some indirect way that your boss or colleague or leader felt a certain way, but wasn't expressing it. If it doesn't come out in a direct way, and I've had colleagues, peers, one I'm friends with who I no longer work with, but 
we joke about the fact that, you know, we, we have heated conversations and tense conversations, but it was because we had the ability to just be blunt with each other. And ultimately that led to a good trusting relationship, even if we, you know, got on each other's nerves and aggravated each other at times, but that's healthy. And, you know, to a certain extent, and I think it was because of that honesty that that could thrive. Oh, I think that's amazing. Now, if you think of some of the bosses that weren't titled your best boss. <laughs> what comes yeah. to mind when you think of some of those people that you've worked with? Yeah. So there's a wide spectrum. I'll go all the way to the far end of it because there's one in particular that, I, that I'm thinking of. Who did not win the best boss ever acknowledgement. No, no, unfortunately that, and you know, God bless this individual, but yeah, in my opinion, was not the greatest uh, boss ever. Well, one, I mean, there's so many things I've already talked about and you just flip it. So took, you know, I talked about deflecting credit and taking blame. This is someone who deflected all the blame and took all the credit, was always preaching about how she was the hardest working person in the organization, uh, which is really not what your hardworking team wants to hear. I was at a, you know, I guess a VP level and she was an executive VP level on the senior team. And it always felt like she saw our team members as almost like checkers pieces, as a, as a, a quantity of hours, as opposed to human beings with a quality of time that we were privileged for them to be offering to us as opposed to the other way around. It just felt like, you know, we're worrying about surface level details, like when they arrive and leave, which again, we, you know, we talked about, you know, it was a lot of conversations level back in our day, we used to work 60 hours, 70 hour weeks to get the work done. I said, well, no, nobody was telling us we had to, we did that because we had a sense of ownership and pride that was instilled by having great leaders. And we took that on ourselves to do that when it was necessary. It, a, maybe it wasn't healthy to do it as much as we did. B, we did it because we had a personal sense of pride, not because someone told us we need to be doing that. And I just felt like, I, and I know she agreed, but I just felt like uh, that it you know, didn't manifest in the way she treated people. Also, I just never felt a sense of curiosity from this person. And that, I don't know, that maybe is just a personal issue I had. I always feel like if I ever kind of stop wanting to learn at, at that point, I don't, you know, it, probably want to find something else to do because life could get pretty boring. And then there was one story in particular that really, I think, exemplifies kind of a, maybe a lack of, I don't know, humility or honesty or authenticity. And it was, we had, at the organization, we had decided to eliminate the receptionist role at the time, which was common amongst many organizations. And I think the person who had been working in that role was doing more office management work, but we still had a reception desk. We hadn't yet renovated the office space. So we had this empty reception desk at the front. And we had a client coming in for a pitch or, or an advertising agency. We had a client coming in and we had one of our junior team members, you know, she had assigned one of our junior team members to sit at the reception desk to pretend essentially that we had a receptionist there. And the first on a very practical level, I don't know how that made sense. If we do win this business, are we going to have to have this person sitting there every time they come in now? <laughs> right, as client? right, like, right. We weren't really thinking ahead very well. Many companies don't have a receptionist. It's okay. We, we could also just be kind of standing there to welcome them. We knew approximately when they were planning to arrive. But most importantly, well, two parts. One, think of how humiliating that is for a junior team member who's bringing so much value to the organization and is now told they have to fake being a stand-in as a receptionist. Not that you know there's anything wrong with being a receptionist, but that's not the role this person had. And number two, just the first interaction with this new potential client is a dishonest one, is one where we're, we're trying to fake something that we're not. And regardless of how small and minute a detail it was, it just felt like, is that really the footing we want to get off on? And I just, it, I didn't want to be part of that. And that just spoke volumes to me about a, a certain level of insecurity that we all, you know, we all have to some extent that I felt like crossed a line. 
in, in many ways. And so that that's a story that stuck with me as, you know, just don't do that. <laughs> what people I think forget sometimes is like, quote unquote, those worst bosses. It's chuck full of micro, what do you want to call it? Microaggressions or micro decisions. I mean, every once in a while, there's obviously this terrible person that steals money from the business and launders it or something, right? It's like, they're kind of like the obvious ones. They're like, you know, we watch Netflix shows with people in them <laughs> kind of playing the same role. But but the the not good bosses, the ones that don't turn into like some kind of theater, it's these micro, these little decisions, these little calls that like rub people the wrong way. And it's not just one, it's one after another, after another, after another. And it's like, like you said, it's like when she, you know, pontificates that she's the hardest working person in the room. Well, then everybody else in the room feels like, are we not hardworking? Like, you know, but it's like, it's just like what you said, it's like this list of these micro little tiny minute things where one of those things wouldn't be a game changer, but each day, another one and another one and another one. starts to really send that message home. And that example about, you know, the receptionist role, like, again, it's not game changing, but it just feels so inauthentic that you just pair that up with more inauthenticity that's disengaging. 100% agree. There was also, we had a great employee leave the company, which was unfortunate, but he had a great opportunity elsewhere. And I don't know, two, three months later, this was someone who was still a friend of mine. Two, three months later, she told me she was pregnant. So I happened to be talking to this boss. I said, oh, by the way, great news. So-and-so's pregnant. And her immediate reaction was, oh, bullet dodged. And I said, well, I, I was thinking more, isn't that nice? Congratulations, you know, <laughs> congratulations on a human level. You know, her thought immediately went to, well, at least we don't have to deal with the whole mat leave situation, et cetera. And which is, again, uh, as a practical matter, something that, you know, when you're in the advertising world and the majority of your team members are 25 to 40 some odd, the majority, you know, more than 50% tend to be uh, female, you're going to be dealing with that. But for that to be the immediate reaction, as opposed to, oh, isn't that amazing, was striking to me. So another, I don't want to pile on, but that was another example. Microaggression, as you said. It is. It's those little examples, though, where you just go, wow, you know, you really do see us as hours logged and not as humans that are have more dimension to us, right? That was my perception of it. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it lands with you, right? Since I'm in the business of leadership development, I'm always getting challenged with what's the return on investment for working for a great boss versus a not great boss. And so people always want numbers and cents, and that's actually very hard to do. But I'm curious, like if I ask you, what's the return on investment for a business to have a best boss versus a not best boss? What do you think? Well, I think like we talked about, people aren't checkers pieces and they're not you know, just a quantity of hours. And I think the best bosses bring out the best quality in those people for the obvious point. But I th- so from an effect, I think there's an effectiveness element to it and, and an efficiency element from an effectiveness standpoint, I think both bosses I alluded to, and there's others, other great ones along the way. I felt like every time I have a conversation with them, I felt feeling better about myself and about the situation. And I feel like I performed at a higher level, let's say 110% versus 90% because of their belief in me and their pragmatism and helping to solve problems. And so you multiply that by all the people in the organizations, both at leadership levels and all the way across, you know, obviously you're obviously getting a high performing group of people. So that, you know, there's the obvious effectiveness angle from an efficiency standpoint. I remember one example when the first boss I alluded to, uh, Dan became the president of the organization. At one point, the first kind of all staff meeting he had, he said, look, I'm asking everyone here at all, at all levels to question everything we're doing, not in a disrespectful way and not in a, in a wasteful way, but 
to just be willing to question every process, every step, every, every operation, because we don't have visibility to everything that everybody does every day, but you do. So question, if you don't feel it makes sense, question it politely and respectfully, you might be told, oh, this is why we're doing it. We're going to continue to do it, but we may find two, three, four processes, operational details that we can fix because of those questions. Sure enough, we did. And we, in the span of maybe two or three months, probably cut about 10% from our cost base, just from finding efficiencies by just empowering everybody to feel a sense of ownership. There was a certain approachability now in that president's chair where anybody felt, okay, I can go and talk directly about this small, minute problem. Again, most of them were not major factors, but there were two or three that led to significant cost savings. So from a pure business sense, just that sense of empowerment increased profitability for the company right away. And so that's, I think, one practical example where just being open and approachable it makes a huge difference. I absolutely, that's a great example. Those are the impact of everybody operating at their A game and being fully transparent when they do see something that doesn't make sense. Like there's huge value in that. It's just hard to convince people what the difference is. So I think that's great. Now, knowing that I've got an audience of leaders out there that are aspiring to be best bosses or great bosses, what would be some of your words of wisdom to them just as we wrap this up? I think going back to a lot of the points, I mean, I think certainly one thing is always, and this is a pet peeve of mine when people use the word I and my a lot versus we and our, I think no matter who actually took care of a certain task, just always speaking in we and our is a huge way to, to set the right tone for organizational or team culture. So that's a little detail. Like I talked about earlier, just believing in people, giving them a chance, being comfortable enough that if they, if they do have a misstep or a quote unquote failure, that sometimes with clients or others, the recovering from that is actually more positively impactful than just swimming along as if everything's perfect. So being okay with that and letting people kind of go out on a limb and take a chance because it's going to work wonders long-term to elevate that individual. I think owning strengths and weaknesses, uh, like I talked about, being okay with being imperfect is super important, not having to pretend that everything's perfect and being vulnerable and recognizing that your style may not mesh with everybody on your team as well as others. And so making sure you're still creating a sense of comfort and openness to that, because I've had that myself. I tend to be a little more improvisational, maybe a little less structured, which can be a tremendous strength, but with certain people that also creates a sense of discomfort because of that missing maybe structure or parameter. And so making sure you can provide that when it's needed, but also being open to the fact that that's going to be a source of tension. I think it's important. You're not going to be able to be perfect, but just being humble enough to proactively manage those sources of tension, I think is important. I think it's important not to feel like you're the smartest person in the room. I think that you're not surrounding yourself with the right people if they don't know more than you do in most cases. You want to bring people in that are smarter than you, that you can learn from, uh, and it may not be that they're smarter or more capable in every aspect of a, a job or a business, but at least in some, if not all, I think if you're not learning from the people around you in all directions, that's that's a problem. And there's a certain level of humility that's, I think, required. And then lastly, kind of reiterating an earlier point, I think establishing that foundation of genuine care, because that allows you to then have you know more blunt and direct conversations that are helpful to both sides that don't become personal in a way that they shouldn't. Uh, that it's it could be about the work, not about the human relationship. Amazing. John, thank you so much for taking the time to let me interview you today. This was awesome. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. 
If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.